He says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be, call, shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now you are letting your, Lord, your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, this text tells us of two of God's choicest saints at that period of time in Israel's history that was indeed a very dark period of Israel's history, two of a small and faithful remnant, as God always has his remnant in every generation. One of them is this venerable old man by the name of Simeon and this devout elderly widow by the name of Anna. And these two, as I say, shine as great lights in the midst of a very dark time in Israel's history. But let's see how the scriptures describe them. First, Simeon. It gives us a fourfold description of him in verse 25. It says, first of all, that he was righteous, that he was devout, that uh, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Let's take the first two of these together because really they're complementary terms. It says that he was righteous and devout. Now, when it says that he was righteous, it's referring to his interactions with other people that he treated them justly according to the law. Didn't cheat them, didn't harm them, didn't take advantage of them, but treated them fairly and equitably under the law. And when it says that he was devout, it's referring to his attitude toward God. That is, that he was reverent towards God. He feared God and loved God and served him. And these things must always go together. The two greatest commandments, Jesus said, are these, that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all our mind, and with all of our strength. And the second commandment, he said, is like the first, but it relates to how we deal with other people. You shall love the Lord, or you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he tells us, and we read it in other places as well, that these two commandments summarize all that God requires of us. And so Simeon exemplified this. He was righteous in his dealings with men, and he was devout toward God. It also says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, this 
particular characteristic is especially interesting. The phrase, consolation of Israel, refers to the great messianic hope of the Jewish people. The great hope of Israel was that the Messiah would come and console or comfort Israel. The idea is taken from the words of the prophet Isaiah. In the 40th chapter of his prophecy, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. The great hope was that the Messiah would come and comfort Israel by delivering Israel from the oppression that was heaped upon her by her enemies on account of her sins. And Jewish writers at the time often referred to the Messiah by the name of Menachem, which is a Hebrew name meaning comforter. Think about that. The, the rabbis referred to the coming Messiah with this name, Comforter, which sheds some light, perhaps, on what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room the night before he suffered. He said, I will pray to the Father, and he will send you another Comforter. He's referring to the Holy Spirit as the second Comforter, but he's implying that he is the first. He is Menachem. He is the Comforter of Israel. So Jesus is the consolation. He is the comfort of Israel. And he is our comfort, too, who comforts us with his salvation by redeeming us from the penalty of our sins. He took, in the words of Isaiah chapter 53, he took the chastening for our well-being upon himself. And in Isaiah 12, it says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. You have comforted me, he says. And there is great comfort to be had in our salvation. All the circumstances of life might seem to be against us at times. We may seem to have overwhelming circumstances and obstacles in our way, but if we know that we are, uh, our soul is at peace with God, through Jesus Christ, we can have comfort even in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those difficulties in life. He is our comforter. The fourth description of Simeon is that the Holy Spirit was upon him. This means something more than the gift of the Holy Spirit that every believer possesses. It indicates a prophetic gift, a gift of supernatural knowledge and revelation. And it was revealed to him by this gift that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In other words, he had it on God's own authority through the spirit of prophecy that before he died, he would see the Messiah with his own eyes. And to understand and appreciate the significance of that, we kind of have to put our place or put ourselves in the place of those who lived in the first century, who lived all of their life, their law, their law, their life. <laughs> Uh, through with the hope of the appearance of the Messiah. The prophets had indicated that a Messiah was coming, a savior figure. There was a lot that remained dark and shadowy and murky about who and at what time this would happen. But the prophet Daniel indicated the time, uh, the general time of the first century in his prophecy of the 70 weeks. And there was great expectation among the Jews that we are living in the generation that may see Messiah come. And there are even pagan writers of the first century who spoke about how the Jews in Judea thought that a great leader would arise from, from their midst who was destined to rule the world. And so many people throughout Israel's history from the time of Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ, 
to the time of Moses, 1,500 years before Christ, the time of David, 1,000 years before Christ, Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, the last prophet, Malachi, about 400 years before Christ. This expectation, this hope, this anticipation was building and building. Could it be that I might live in the generation that would see the, the coming of the Messiah? And here's Zechariah now at a very advanced age, age has it revealed to him that he would not pass until he sees the Lord's Messiah. He must have cherished that promise very much. The second member of God's remnant we meet with in this passage is a woman by the name of Anna. And like with Simeon, there's a fourfold description of her. First, it says that she was a prophetess. Second, that she was advanced in years and that she was a widow of very long standing. And fourthly, that she constantly worshipped God in the temple with fasting and praying. From the very earliest of times from the scriptures, it appears to have been, we, we appear to see a number of women who devoted themselves to prayer and fasting at, at the sacred place. First, the tabernacle before the temple was built. We read about it even um, at, in the first days of when the tabernacle was erected, a group of women who served at the entrance of the temple or this tabernacle. In the days of Samuel, references mentioned, made mention of again of this, this group of women who served at the entrance of the tabernacle. And now we find in the days of our Lord that there is this widow named Anna who is doing much the same thing, giving herself constantly to fasting and prayer. Now, these women were not official ministers of the temple ordained by the law, as were the Levites and the priests, but they appear to have been women who were inspired by a spirit of, of piety to dedicate themselves to a life of prayer and service. Well, such a woman was Anna. She was widowed after seven years of marriage, at which time she dedicated herself to a life of earnest prayer and fasting. And she was now 84 years old, or as some would have it, she lived after her widowhood 84 years, making her now over 100 years old. But in either case, she was a model of that band of virtuous widows that Paul would later describe in his first letter to Timothy. Widows who pledged to remain unmarried and continue in supplication and in prayer night and day. Being freed from the responsibility of having a husband and raising children, they devoted themselves to the service of God. She, too, like Simeon, was moved by the Holy Spirit to recognize Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And she raised her voice in thanksgiving to God and spoke of him, it says, to all of those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Again, it's speaking of a particular class of Jewish people who lived in that period of time who were the faithful remnant. They were anticipating, they were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Similar things are said about some other people in the New Testament. Joseph of Arimathea, for instance, is described as one who was waiting for the kingdom of God. So with, uh, with Simeon uh, looking for, awaiting the consolation of Israel, um, with uh, those that are mentioned here, connection with Anna, those who are looking for the redemption of Israel, those who are waiting for the kingdom of God. All of these are essentially synonymous ways of expressing the same idea, this great hope that Messiah might come in our day and bring salvation to our nation and to our people. Now let's consider the prophecy of Simeon, what he has to say about Jesus and what he has to say specifically uh, to Joseph and Mary. 
The first thing we notice is that he was led by the Holy Spirit into the temple at the very time that the Holy, uh, that the Holy Family was there to carry out what the Lord required after childbirth, which was a rich ritual washing, a cleansing, a ritual purification. And it says of Simeon that he took the baby Jesus up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, I've always thought that this is a very touching scene because you get the sense that this is, um, well, even as the scriptures describe him, a righteous and devout man whose, whose hopes are all pinned on this promise that God made to him, that he would not pass from the scene before he sees the Lord's Messiah. And so now the time has come, and he is ready to die. He is ready, in those beautiful words of Scripture, to be gathered to his fathers, uh, to go on to his reward. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now notice here how it had also been revealed to him that the Lord's salvation involved all people, not just the Jewish people, but all people. He speaks of this salvation as being prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The prophets had spoken about this, especially Isaiah, that when Messiah comes, he would be a light to the nations and not just a blessing to Israel. It would be through Christ that the Gentiles would come to know God. Prior to the coming of Jesus, God had confined his revelation to the people of Israel. Everyone had the, the light of natural revelation or general revelation, which means we can look out into the creation, we can look at God's handiwork, and we can deduce certain things about God, namely his existence and his divine power and attributes and his glory, as, as Paul describes in the first chapter of Romans. But God reserved his verbal revelation, his spoken word, uh, he gave that only to the Jewish people, only to Israel. In fact, David praises God for this peculiar advantage that Israel has over all the other nations. In Psalm 147, he says that God declared his word to Jacob and his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. The nations would come to know his rules, however, when Jesus would send out his apostles to the four corners of the earth. And those who have followed in their train through the generations, that's how we in little old Pratt, Kansas, uh, in the middle of nowhere, having no Jewish heritage, that's how we have come to know the Lord's rules and his statutes, how we've come to know his law. We have access to the words of the prophets, to the teaching of our Lord, the instruction of the apostles in their letters. Um, and so we have come to know the Lord through the preaching of the gospel that began with the resurrection of Christ. So Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now, Simeon also said that the, the child would be a glory to Israel. And listen, it is Israel's glory that it is from their nation and from their people that the Messiah has come. As our Lord himself said, salvation is from the Jews. We have a great debt that we owe to the Jewish people. They have a great, a place of great honor um, in God's redemptive history and purposes for the world because God chose them 
as the people through whom he would bring his Messiah ultimately to be a light to all nations. Now, Simeon speaks of some wonderful things about this baby in Mary's arms. Actually, he's holding Jesus in his own arms as he says these things. And what must have been Joseph's and Mary's thoughts as, as he said these things? In verse 34, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Though this child was the Messiah, not everyone would welcome him. Some were threatened by him. Herod certainly was. He sought to kill him while he was still in his infancy. Though some would rejoice and be saved, others would stumble over him and fall. He brought two very different destinies to men like Annas and Caiaphas, Herod and Pilate on the one hand, and to men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and the disciples and others who followed him on the other hand. He was the great, at that point, the great dividing line among, in the human race, and he continues to be that dividing line. It says, Simeon says, thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. That is, the hearts of men are revealed by their reaction to him, whether they embrace him as the Son of God and ruler of all or whether they reject him and say, in the words of Jesus' parable, uh, that was ultimately referring to himself, we don't want this man to reign over us, the king who had appointed his son to rule over a particular province. And they said, we don't want this man to rule over us. And he's indicated, indicating in that parable the response of the majority of the Jewish people in his own generation. We know far more about people by knowing their reaction to Jesus than we know anything else about them. Uh, how old a person is, where he lives, where he received his education, what his livelihood is, his political affiliation, nationality, ethnicity, marriage status, economic condition. How a person responds to Jesus reveals far more about that person than any other circumstance of life. Anything else that you could find out about him. The thoughts from many hearts will be revealed by their reaction to him. And so I ask you tonight, where do you stand in relationship to Christ? What is your reaction to him? Do you bow the knee to him in loving kindness or in loving adoration and submission? Or are you one who says, I don't want this man to reign over me? And you try to get his yoke from off your neck, as it were, not realizing that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, that you are stubborn and hard-hearted and want to go your own way. What is your reaction to him? Your response reveals a great deal about the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Well, Simeon gives a forewarning of Mary's suffering when he says parenthetically in verse 35, and yet very poignantly, he says, A sword will pierce through your own soul also. I wonder what Mary thought at that moment. We have the advantage of looking backward and, of course, knowing what happened to our Lord. And we wonder what were Mary's thoughts when she saw our Lord, her son, tortured, crowned with thorns, whipped, beaten, crucified, 
and eventually dying on that cross, this son of hers who was no ordinary son. However much any woman loves her son, we cannot doubt, but what Mary loved her son more. They had a special relationship which no other mother and son before or since has ever had or can have. What an agony of soul Mary must have felt when she saw Jesus suffer, when she saw him crucified. The son who had been given to her by God in such a unique way, who had loved her as no other son loved his mother. A perfect love from a perfect son. What awful pain she must have suffered when he was put to death, contrary to all of her expectations and all of her maternal feelings. It would be like a sword piercing her soul. As Mary fulfilled the law of ritual purification after childbirth, she would have ascended the 15 steps up to the Nicanor gate of the temple where a priest would have met her and received her offering and where he would have, in turn, sprinkled her with the blood of the turtle dove, which she presented for her cleansing. What she didn't know at that time was that she would later be sprinkled by the blood of the baby that she held in her arms. And that blood would cleanse her not only from ritual impurity deriving from childbirth, it would cleanse her from sin, and it would cleanse all from sin who look to him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we bless and glorify your name for all that you have done for us, but especially for sending Jesus into the world to be our Savior that we might be sprinkled with his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, even as we stand here in awe to think of that holy mystery, of the fullness of deity dwelling in that little baby, even so, Lord, remind us and help us to understand that he's no longer a little baby lying in a manger, nor even a full-grown man still hanging upon the cross, but he is instead the resurrected and ascended Lord of glory, enthroned at your right hand, having accomplished everything that you sent him in the world to do. Help us to understand truly that he lives and reigns together with you in the Holy Spirit. And may all nations be glad and rejoice in him. This we ask in his name. Amen.